We have two scripture readings. The book of Revelation, verse, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. But the responsive reading from the Old Testament comes from Psalm 148. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all His shining stars. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, and all beasts, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them in our New Testament reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you will come to me after the service and say, John, 
in my Bible, in Revelation 19, I had some notes that looked something like the sermon this morning. I hope you do that. Because that means that you've been a studious, that you take notes in your Bible, that you record it. I uh, think that's awesome. Somebody gave me some notes just a few weeks ago from messages that I preached in this congregation. They gave me notes that I preached in 1988. I love that. That made my day. So what I'm telling you is that about a year ago, about a year and a month ago, you heard a similar outline from this passage. But I could not go to any other passage this morning to talk about worship. For those that are visiting with us this morning, we have been in a study in the gospel according to John. But our leadership team said as we move toward being the church that Jesus called us to be, a reformed church following the great biblical doctrines of the Reformation, our leadership team has said it's time that we have an election in the church of elders and deacons because that's what the Bible prescribes. And so I was going to preach a series of three sermons. This, again, was from the leadership team that spoke about the church and what elders and deacons looked like and why we were doing this. But I couldn't do that. The Holy Spirit really opened my eyes in realizing, and I've known this a long time, and we've talked about it, but realizing that the church today is held in very low esteem. The church has been marginalized in our society. People that have been members of the church are leaving the church by hundreds of thousands throughout our society. We live in a secular, hedonistic society, and the church has been marginalized. Now, that's one thing, and it's one thing for the world to do that, but it's quite another for the church to do that. And inside the church, the evangelical church, there's a prevailing view that has marginalized the church, even from inside the church. People think they can either take it or leave it that it's not necessary, that we can have faith independent of the church. We can have faith in Jesus independent from the church. It's astounding if we stop and contrast, and that's what we've been doing these last few weeks. We've been contrasting what Jesus said about the church, what God said about the church, with this marginalized view that's inside of evangelical Christianity. And the Lord has spoken powerfully to us about this in the last three weeks. If you're visiting, I would encourage you to go to our website and listen to those messages. The Lord just blessed them wonderfully. The speaker, he wasn't much, but the Lord's message came through loud and clear by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are still going to end up in a few weeks speaking about the elders and deacons. But we've come to talk about 
the priority of the church this morning. What's the priority of the church? And we immediately think about the mission of the church and thinking about evangelism, think about benevolence, think about missions, think about Christian education. What's the priority of the church? And we read it this morning in Revelation 19. We read it this morning in Psalm 96 and our call to worship again in Psalm 148. That's our subject this morning and why we've come to this passage. You know, if you're, and many of you are doing this now, you realize that the whole worship, uh, there's a theme in our services here at Christ Covenant. And whatever the theme of the message is, that's going to be the theme of all the different parts of the worship. Well, this morning, as we're thinking about worship, every part of the worship, from our call to worship, from Psalm 96, uh, Psalm 96 is a great, great psalm about worship. Every hymn that we have sung and will sing, including the choir's anthem, was about worship. The responsive reading and New Testament reading about worship. So, as you look at the notes that you take this morning, they'll look something like some notes that you've taken before. So, it's about 50% what you've heard before and 50% that you didn't hear that's been added in the message. What happens... When God meets with his people. That's a relevant question. For in the last few weeks, we've understood that's exactly what's happening in the church as his people gather. Just a brief review. In their wilderness journey. God told Israel to build a sanctuary, a holy place, a tabernacle, or a tent. That's what the word tabernacle meant. They were a nomadic people traveling through wilderness. To build God's tent, God's tabernacle. And he would meet with them there. When they settled in a land God had promised, he told them to build a new sanctuary. Not a tent, but a more permanent building, not a, not a tabernacle, a temple. And he said, I will meet with you there. In the New Testament, God told the disciples that the church, the people of God, would be his sanctuary. They would be, when they gathered his actual holy place, his holy dwelling. So what happened when the people of God met with him in the tabernacle? What happened when the people of God met with him in the temple? What happened when the people of God gathered and found that God was with them? That Jesus is there. He had said of the church, where two or three gather in my name, I will be there. Just like at the tabernacle. Just like at the temple. I'll be in there, your midst. So, 
What happened when the people of God gathered and found God was in their midst? It's summed up in one word. Worship. Worship. Why should we be so concerned about worship? Well, let me ask you. What's the priority of the church? The single first priority. Worship. If Jesus were standing here in the flesh and you ask him, Lord, what are we to be about? First and foremost, Jesus would give the answer that is given for millennia. He would say, worship. In Scripture, God says that the first priority of his people is indeed worship. Think about it. The first four commandments, first four of the Ten Commandments, call us to worship him. With the tabernacle, what was God saying? He said, build me a sanctuary, build me a holy place. For what purpose? Worship. Build me a temple. For what purpose? Worship. What's the longest book in the Old Testament? The book of Psalms. What's the book of Psalms about? Worship. It's the, num- it's the thing. The last book of the Bible. The book of Revelation. Major, major theme. In one way you could say it is the major theme of the book of Revelation. Is the worship of God's people. When the veil is pulled back in Revelation and we're allowed to see heaven itself. What's the primary activity? Worship. John Calvin made a unique and powerful statement when he wrote Charles V about the Reformation. He wrote that the chief priority of the Christian faith, this is what he told Charles V, the chief priority of the Christian faith was worship. Do you know what he said the second priority was? Salvation. And immediately you think, that's the wrong order. That seems wrong. But Calvin explained, he said, salvation is a means to an end. And what's the end of salvation? What did God have in mind with salvation? Worship. To do that thing that we were made to do, that we were created to do. The sun was created to give light and heat to the earth, to hold the solar system in order. That's why the sun is there in God's purpose. Well, just so, man was created to worship God, to commune with God. Now, if the sun did not give light and the sun did not give heat to the earth, it would not be doing what God created it to do. When mankind failed to worship, when mankind fell into sin, and in the darkness, he was no longer could do what he was created to do. 
You think about think about the world, this hedonistic, secular world in which we live. Where's the worship? Where's the worship? It's not there. So, if this is true, if this is the priority that God has said should be the priority, then what CCRC does in her worship here on the Lord's Day is her most important activity and will profoundly affect everything that she does. It all begins with worship. Missions, Christian education, evangelism, benevolence. They all begin with worship. And if you take away the worship, missions and Christian education and benevolence will soon be affected. Now, come to our text this morning in Revelation 19. John hears what sounds like a loud voice of a great multitude. That's what he said. And several times in John, he's talked about the loudness that takes place in heaven. It's not a quiet place. That doesn't mean that they were chaotic and it was chaotic. It was a loud voice of a great multitude worshiping God. Don't think in two or three gathering and don't think in two or three hundred gathering. Think of two hundred or three hundred thousand or two hundred million people gathering. What would that sound like in worship? And it wasn't only the saints of God home in glory. It's a great seraphim and cherubim, the great angelic host. And it was beyond anything he had ever heard. The immense course of millions singing in praise of God's great victory on earth. In chapter 18, the worldwide secular and hedonistic city of Babylon. Babylon that had been in open rebellion against God. Destroying his creation. Following after the evil one with a passion. Following after the Antichrist with a passion and joy. And carrying out a genocide against God's people. Well, that city had been eradicated in chapter 19 or chapter 18. So what happens in chapter 19? The praise of heaven. The praise of glory at the destruction of this evil. A victory over evil was being celebrated. And heaven literally exploded with worship. There are three different scenes in this great act of worship in chapter 19. Each scene begins with the multitude singing, Hallelujah! Hallel! Praise Yahweh! That's what the word means. Handel's Hallelujah course is based on chapter 19 of Revelation. We've seen all through, we saw all through Revelation in our study that worship just continues. The theme of worship continues through the entire book. 
And that's, we're observing in that book worship that takes place in heaven. What better place to learn about worship, to learn of our worship and what it should be like? A worship without sin, not tainted with sin. We confessed in our prayer this morning that our hymns, our prayers are tainted with insincerity, are tainted with sin in our lives. What better place to stop and say, what should our worship look like? What should it be? What is worship? Perhaps you're not a Christian. And this is a strange thing to you as you sat in the midst of the worship this morning. What makes these people sing? What are they doing? What is this all about? What is worship? Why do this? Well, the question is answered in Revelation 19. First, we see here that worship is an expression of our love for God. Look at verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. You see there, since they fell down and worshiped God, the word for worship there, you would not believe what that word is. It means kiss. It means, so it's Greek, two Greek words put together, proskunio. Pros meaning toward or to. And kunio meaning kiss. That's the word God chose to talk about worship. What is a kiss? A kiss is an intimate act. An intimate act of love. That's the word God chose to define our worship. What are we doing? We're kissing toward God. Think about it. It's consistent with the rest of Scripture. In the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, what does God tell Israel? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, when Jesus was asked in the New Testament, when he was asked, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Above all other commandments, what is the greatest? He actually was quoting the Shema. Look in Matthew 22, 37. And he said to them, here's how your Jesus answered it. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. What am I to do above all else, Jesus? Love the Lord your God. Love him. Well, how? Worship. You kiss him when you worship. What are we doing here this morning? As we sing, as we pray, as we confess our faith, as we attend his word, we're expressing our love for him. We often pray in this place, Lord, In some form, we pray this prayer, Lord, 
in our worship keep us from empty ceremony when we come here and merely run through the order of worship without passion, without love. That's not worship, people. It's empty ceremony. Jesus saw this in the legalistic Pharisees of his day. These were the religious paragons of Israel's culture. And he saw them keeping all the outward rules all the out, and all their outward actions. But he did not see a people of love. He didn't see a worship of God that was full of heart and love. They were just going through the motions. And Jesus spoke to them about it. He quoted Isaiah. It's in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. Look at it. This people honors me with their lips. They go to the temple. They do what the scriptures have prescribed outwardly in the temple. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They don't love me. It's not done out of love. It's not done out of passion. And look what he says about their worship in verse 9. In vain do they worship. They might as well not be here. In fact, it is a sin for them to be there because it's just pretense. It's not real. In vain. Oh, may Jesus not say that about us in our worship at CCRC. May he not say, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far from me. A man once told me in a specific conversation, John, I went to church for years and years and never worshiped. And he said, I feel sure the people that were in church with me, they worshiped probably, but I didn't. I was just going through some kind of a religious expression and I asked him, I said, well, what happened? I said, has that changed? And he said, oh, everything changed when I understood the gospel. When I understood I was a sinner who needed a Savior, when I understood the Father had given his own son for my sins, I came to church like I did before, but everything was changed. Now I love God. I loved his son. I loved his Holy Spirit. Now, I remember that conversation, but I've heard that story repeated over and over and over again. People get this, understand this. Worship is the great line of demarcation between the Christian and the world. It is the line, it's the boundary line. It's a mark that marks the Christian apart from the world. You say, what do you mean? Well, sometimes the world will join with Christians. They'll join with us in feeding the hungry. The world will join us in supporting Palmer Home and taking care of children who don't have parents. The world will join us in providing homes for the homeless. But the world does not join us in worship. The passionate love of God. Worship makes no sense to them. Singing in love and praise to the Creator, singing in love and praise to Christ, it sounds foreign, sounds silly. 
God told Israel through Moses, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Our love for Christ drives us to worship with all of our might. Worship is an expression of our love for God. Secondly, this passage tells us that worship is an expression of reverence for God's transcendence. Look at verse 4. And the 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshiped. They fell down and worshiped, fell on their faces. God who was created on the throne, they were saying, Amen. Hallelujah. They fell down. That does not mean they were knocked down. Does not mean that they lost their balance or fell sideways or backwards. They purposely fell on their faces. They could do no other. Why? It was in a response to the transcendence of God. What's what's reverence? They fell on their faces in reverence to God. What's reverence? We show reverence when the judge walks into the courtroom. And what happens? We stand and we show reverence for his position and for the law. People bow down or bow before the king or queen of their country. Why? In reverence. In reverence to that position. What's God's position? Do you realize he's the ultimate transcendence? There's not anyone or anything that's transcendent of God. Not anyone. He's the creator. You know what? We stand in awe. We look at these pictures that are taken by cameras in space and telescopes in space. And we see these marvelous pictures of the Milky Way galaxy, of our own solar system. And it's amazing. We, we're in awe of those pictures. We see transcendence when we look at the universe. What's the most powerful thing you know? The most powerful? The universe. God made the universe. He's more vast than the universe. And we come. People, this is what the church has just lost. If you'd asked me before the service and said, what's happened inside the church? What's happened in the worship? I would say in the worship in the last 20 years, we completely lost our view and the biblical view of God's transcendence. There's no reverence. I walked into a church several years ago in Warsaw, Indiana. It had been once been this area had once been a large Christian conference center. And I thought we would go over there and find some remnant of that conference center. And here was this church. And people were walking into the church flip-flops shorts t-shirts 
that's all you have, that's fine. But that wasn't all they had. That was the least they had. Everything was casual. I walked in. I was with Janet. And I said, well, at least the gospel will be preached. Let's, let's go. Come on. We was near 11 o'clock. We weren't going to find another place. I walked in and I saw somebody handed me a bulletin. And there on the bulletin was a logo. And under the logo was written, it's the logo of this church, living to make God look good. And I said, we can't do this, Janet. It may be that Jesus will return in the next 30 minutes, and I do not want to be standing in a church thinking they're living to make God look good. What a summary. Where's the reverence? He's God. One of the best pictures of reverence. Well, look, look, at the, look at the verse. Look at verse 5. And from the throne came the voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him. That could be translated, you who reverence him. There's always this reverence in every view of worship we have. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6, and I know that some of you are saying that's where John always ends up when he wants to talk about transcendence. It is one of the great, great passages. We should have it memorized. In the year the king Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah had this panoramic view of God in the temple. The great seraphim worshiping God. These were huge creatures. They're sinless. They had known God for eons. And they were still in all, in all as if it was the first day they saw him, they were in awe of him. They'd never gotten used to the transcendence. Transcended in glory. They'd not, never gotten used to the holiness, to the majesty, to the glory, to the holiness. I love the scene taking place in the temple, of, the temple with Isaiah. That was a sanctuary. That was a sanctuary. This is a sanctuary this morning. God is meeting with his people. It's been made a sanctuary because where two or three gather, he will be in their midst. Jesus is here. That's what's happening. Does a holy reverence, does the reverence that we see in Isaiah 6, does it fill this room? Again, the line of demarcation between the Christian and the world is not only the love of God, but his reverence. 
Look at Romans 3.18. As he's enumerating the sins of the world, he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no reverence of God before their eyes. I have one question for you. That's the world, and there's no reverence of God and no love of God. I have one question for you. Why in the world does the evangelical church go out to a hedonistic world, a secular world, and say, talk to us about how we should worship. We want our worship to be palpable to you. Worship is an expression of your love for God. Worship is an expression of reverence for God and for God's transcendence. And thirdly, worship is an expression of submission to God's reign. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed like a loud voice of great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He reigns. He doesn't visit our worship just as someone we love. He doesn't visit our worship just as someone we reverence. He visits our worship as our Lord and King, as our Sovereign. He brings us back here each week because we need it. He brings us back here to bow before Him. To say he's God and we're not. We're not self-made people. We say that every week in this place. We come bring our tithes and offerings. I have found that when Christians are in the grips of habitual sin, when we know we're willfully choosing to sin, do you know what we do? We stay away from worship. Somebody starts missing from worship and they're not here for a while. It usually turns out there's a lot of sin going on in their lives. Why do they stay away from worship? Why do we stay away from worship when we're caught in our sins? Because in worship we are reminded of the reign of God. He's our Lord. We must bow before Him and say, I want to follow you. I want to obey you. You're my King. You're my Lord. I bow before you, not only in love, not only in reverence, but I bow before you to follow your will, to follow your way. Worship is an expression of our love for God, our reverence for God's transcendence, an expression of our submission to God's reign. Fourthly and finally, worship is an expression of love, of reverence and submission that belongs only to God. This worship of which we speak must never be given to anyone else or any other thing. Look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and for your brothers. Who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The angel had been there. As they had observed the destruction. 
of the worldly Babylon, Babylon's demise. And as they had witnessed this overwhelming worship of heaven, and the angel told John, listen to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, John was overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed with all this worship that he was seeing, with the holiness of God, the majesty, the glory. He was overwhelmed. And here was this, this angel, huge, magnificent, and he fell at the angel's feet. What was the angel's response? It's not recorded here, not with really the emphasis. That angel looked at John, horrified. What are you doing? Have you lost your mind? Don't you dare do that, John. I'm a mere creature like you. You worship God. The worship described in Revelation 19 belongs to God alone. Look at, look at Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. This is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The worship to which he calls CCRC is to be given to God alone and only to him. Evangelical ministers and congregations need to keep the exchange between the angel and John on the front burner of their memories. We need to keep it on our front burners. Congregations sometimes put their ministers on such pedestals that it's like the minister is their deity, their last word, or an assistant deity. Some ministers are so gifted in preaching that their people forget that all true preaching is only a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. What did the great apostle Paul say? It's right into the Corinthians. My preaching was not about my oratory ability. My preaching was a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. That was it. The power of the Holy Spirit. Not the power of a man's personality. Not the power of the personality of John Sartell or any other minister. Ministers are culpable in this. As many want to be on a pedestal. They live for it. Sometimes they act as if ordination makes them some kind of assistant deity. The theme of every communication between ministers and congregation ought to say, Worship God and God alone, for he does not give his worship to another. There was an angel of light. He wanted the glory that belonged to God. He sought that glory for himself. His name is Satan. Our culture meets at Satan's temple daily. In the secular and hedonistic cities of our nation. But we will not have any of that in this sanctuary. Give the glory to God. Because to do anything else is to be satanic.
Amen.